The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. Hello. We can never have enough of nature, wrote Henry David Thoreau in 1854. We must be refreshed by the sight of inexhaustible vigor, vast and titanic features, the seacoast with its wrecks, the wilderness with its living and its decaying trees, the thundercloud, and the rain which lasts three weeks and produces freshets. I suppose that what in other men is religion is in me love of nature. End quote. With his book Walden or Life in the Woods, Henry David Thoreau turned a two-year experiment to live in a small cabin into one of the seminal moments in American literature. Here was a transcendentalist, a follower of his conscience, a pencil maker, a teacher, a searcher who soaked up religion and philosophy and declared himself a follower of spiritual and moral truths, wherever they came. I do not prefer one religion or philosophy to another, he said. I have no sympathy with the bigotry and ignorance which make transient and partial and puerile distinctions between one man's faith or form of faith and another's. To the philosopher, all sects, all nations are alike. I like Brahma, Hari, Buddha, the Great Spirit, as well as God. End quote. With his trip to the woods, described so vividly in Thoreau's unmatched prose, Thoreau launched a tradition of writers who followed his path, sometimes trying to replicate it quite literally, and sometimes finding a new way of their own. Our guest today, Nina Shengold, is one of those who found a new way. She didn't retreat to a life of solitude to commune with nature. She departed from her writer's desk, her teaching, her more or less suburban existence, to explore the world of the Ashokan Reservoir, a setting of gorgeous vistas and teeming humanity. She was turning 60, and she was looking for a kind of renewal, a kind of project to help her return to her childhood yearning for nature and her grown-up desire to impose some discipline on a life of creativity, to give herself a goal and then to see it through. 365 days at the reservoir, 366 counting the leap year, and she threw in an extra day to stitch her Mobius strip together. It's Thoreau-like in its intent, but there's a great difference. At times she was alone, watching the stars and the sunsets and the fish and the fowl, and at other times she was surrounded by humanity, joggers and rollerbladers, families and fresh faces, the old and the young, exercisers, sightseers, nature lovers, and maybe the indifferent or hostile. Henry David Thoreau at Walden Pond and Nina Shengold at the Ashokan Reservoir in upstate New York, today on the History of Literature. Okay, here we go. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Jack Wilson. Nature. Last time we were in the world of protest, in the world of civil disobedience. There's a joke about Thoreau that most people think of him as the man who spent half his life in the woods and the other half in jail. But of course, that's not true. He spent two years in the woods learning what he can, and one night in jail after he refused to pay the poll tax, because the money was going to be used to support the institution of slavery and the Mexican-American War, an imperialist adventure that further promulgated slavery. Thoreau never saw the abolition of slavery, sadly. He died in 1862 at the age of 44. He had contracted 
tuberculosis years before, and had lived with it for a while. As it sporadically rose up in 1860, he went out during a rainstorm to count the rings on tree stumps. And if that is not the most Thorovian activity imaginable, I don't know what is. Out in the rainstorm, counting rings on tree stumps. Why? Why in the rain? You don't see them any better. They don't dissolve and go away if you don't count them quickly. They will be there the next day when the sun comes out. Fourth row, I think it was the experience. All of life was the experience. It was the feeling, the joy of being alive, the wonder, the embrace of everything. Counting tree rings is an amazing experience. Adults don't often do it. They should. You feel connected with nature. You feel the magic of it, the history, the life, and the death. And when it's raining, well, have you ever been outside when it starts to rain and you can't get to shelter and then you just decide, hey, I'm okay out here. This actually feels good. I'm going to be fine. That's how Thoreau lived. Unfortunately, he got sick, but that's not the lesson I'm taking from the event. I'm taking the lesson that sometimes those tree rings need to be counted. The self needs to be in a position to count them, come what may, just like it's grand to walk through the grass in your bare feet or to look up at the stars or watch fireflies like an amazed child. Sometimes the world spins too fast. Sometimes the city, well, cities have their own grandeur. But sometimes you need that reminder that you are just a bit of dust come to life an astonishing, sentient being who can think and laugh and love and cry, and you're part of the world, the universe, nature itself. You are, you know, that's what your body is, and you will be your best self when you remember that. Thoreau's last words were, Now comes good sailing. That's beautiful. Where was his mind in those final moments? Was that a metaphor? As in... Here we go, on our way to heaven, or the afterlife, whatever it is. But it's going to be a smooth transition, good sailing, toward that moment of peace. Or was he imagining himself on the sea, in his beloved nature, and he was commenting on an assessment of the sea he was about to sail across in his mind's eye? A metaphor or a vision? I like them both. I like both ideas. And then... It was actually word, his final words. He, then he said two final words that no one has ever figured out. Moose and Indian. I guess you just have to like life and humanity and all its complexity to like that part of the story. We almost ended with now comes good sailing. <laughs> that would have been perfect. And instead we have a mysterious moose and an Indian and it's like a great mind either reached for something beyond the understanding of the rest of us, or that great mind sputtered out into random fragments. Citizen Thoreau, remembering something important to him. Maybe we'll talk about that another time. We don't have all the time in the world to talk, to, to talk, to talk about Thoreau, as tempting as that may be. We're also not going to talk too much about Walden today, because we have a guest who set out on her project and did something similar though not identical. Maybe we'll dive deeper into Walden Pond another time. It's actually a pond that I've swum in, swam in, swam in once upon a time, back when I was young and strong and traveling through New York and New England, visiting friends on my way to Italy. There were days in the woods, on hikes, 
nights under the stars with beer and laughter and flirtation and a great feeling that life could stretch out like a road and take me wherever it would, and it would all be magical and could never go on long enough. This was living, and here was the pond. I mean the pond. I'd been in plenty of ponds before, and swimming holes and old pits and pools and lakes, large and small. I'd swum in rivers and streams and ridden in boats and water skied behind them. But this was special. This had the weight of history behind it, literary history. And I ran down the shore, past the beach, which had a bunch of New Englanders splashing around, and ran out to where there was no one. And I dove in with a kind of spiritual relish. And I submerged my face in the waters in the shadow of Thoreau's cabin, with trees he must have seen, and birds like the ones he must have heard, and the sky he enjoyed, and the world he embraced. The world of nature, in its violence and glory, and wow, and wow, and wow, I can still feel that water all around me, cooling me at first, then warming me, as the Mother Earth pulls me deep into her embrace and my eyes are closed, and my ears are submerged, and I can't see or hear or smell. I can just feel. Feel all those things, all those sensations. Feel the water as if I can see it, and hear the world in its beautiful hushed hum, and smell the earth as if I've found a whole new way to smell, a way that takes me inside it and lets me be a part of it, with my skin and bones and flesh and blood all inside my mind, and my mind all inside the earth, and I am in nature, and nature is in me. There's no difference. It's a mother and child in the womb. It's two beings joined together. It's larger than me, and yet I and my mind are large enough to take it all in and become a part of it, to draw it deeper inside, even as I am drawn by it into it, not just little by little, but all at once, completely tiny extremely enormous, and gone, 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 all at once. It feels like I need to be here. I want to be here. I am here. Here is where I am. Nowhere else. No other time. This is it. This is life. This is me. Beautiful. It's good to be alive. So, let's hear from a few listeners, then we'll be back with Nina Shengold, who took a 21st century project, took on a 21st century project, I should say, an updated version of Thoreau, and wrote a diary of all she experienced. That's coming up after this. Hey, grown-ups! The Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet 
podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his fishbowl podcast studio from the cat in the hat himself. And it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast. And those plans are the opposite of quiet. The cat may be disruptive, but it turns out he's also a great help to get fish out of all kinds of predicaments. Bursting with music, silliness, and rhymes, the Cat in the Hat cast encourages us all to find fun that is funny in every episode. Sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at titanic tongue twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Okay, first email. Oh, this is a good one. This is a bit of a continuation of a story that we started, I think, in the Seven Deadly Sins episode. Subject surreptitious colleague, Jack. Today, as always, I took a long middle-of-the-day walk with my youngest daughter, pushing her in a stroller, enjoying the lake, trees, and neighborhood scenery. During the walk, I finished your Rilke episode, which I truly enjoyed. He is a writer I often quote when assigning creative writing to students. I build them up with practical advice and then sum it up with, no one can advise or help you, no one which usually elicits stares of confusion. Anyways, I'm on my walk and begin to burst out loud in actual laughter as I listen to you open the show on the seven deadly sins with my dear colleague Carol's email. I haven't seen her in months since quarantine, but I can hear her voice through your reading of her email. Sadly, the situation she depicted is true. At a school! There are many reasons and moments within our school which has pushed me underground and I take refuge in her nurse's office to get real literary talk. And yes, Magic Mountain was dropped by a colleague for a Gwyneth Paltrow book. Mike would love to hear that, I'm sure. Anyways, last time I wrote, you suggested the James Joyce episode focusing on the dead. I think it might be my favorite episode. I'm not sure if performance is the right word, but I think you felt it more than usual with that one. Or maybe I did. I'm always looking to add to my yearly literary traditions, especially around Christmas time, so maybe I'll add the Dubliners to my reading, along with my yearly reading of A Christmas Carol. Jack, during this dreadful time of quarantine and chaos in the world, for all the reasons we both know, I thank you and look forward to every new episode. And tell Mike I have read two Murakami novels, Norwegian Wood and The Wind-Up Bird Chronicles. Those were selected solely off of your podcast. And I'm wrestling with the, is he literary question? I am not sure, but I really enjoyed them. Anyways, upward and onward, this made my day, and I'm sure it will make carols when I email her to listen if she hasn't already done so. Sincerely, Nick, the surreptitious colleague. P.S. We are just friends. She has children my age. We both laughed at that. P.P.S. Sorry I don't want to share your podcast with many people. I'm strangely possessive and particular about giving out the literary things in my life. In my mind, you sort of have to earn the good things like this. Wow. Thank you, Nick. You may remember Carol, the wonderful writer who told me all about this little cabal that she and her colleague Nick had cooked up. And we work at a school, she said. <laughs> 
Exclamation mark. That's the problem with schools and teachers. They sometimes let you down. Well, I'm glad to hear from Nick, the surreptitious colleague. You're right, Nick, that The Dead was one of those special episodes for me. That story has meant so much to me, and the movie, too. I think I got a little carried away. Well, I was in the hands of a master. Sometimes that happens. Sometimes a little transporting is just how it goes. So thank you for the email, Nick, and good luck to you and Carol. I'm imagining the two of you passing each other in the hallways and giving little nods or a secret sign like tugging your earlobe or a finger rubbing the side of your nose. New episode dropped. Yep, heard it already. All conveyed wordless, wordlessly to make sure your oppressive colleagues don't attack you like pop culture zombies trying to drag you down into their tomb. Stay strong, Nick and Carol. I'll send reinforcements. It will be up to you to figure out who they are. Next email from Jeremy. Subject, greetings from Halifax, Nova Scotia. Good morning, Mr. Wilson. The History of Literature podcast is as comforting as it is inspiring, and my daily walks and responsibilities around the apartment have become much more pleasurable, accompanied by you and your terrific guests. Growing up in rural Nova Scotia without a public library, the 1980s and 90s forced me to depend on bi-monthly scholastic book orders and the occasional visit from the municipal bookmobile to fill a desperate need for books and the empathetic journey which they inspired. It is only during my time at university that I was able to delve deeper into the classics and contemporary classics, and I have been trying to catch up ever since for the last 20 years. Let me just pause here, interrupt the email to say, I loved the scholastic book orders. Do you remember those? Did you have those? I always got to buy one book. Sometimes I could find a book that was a little expensive, and I'd get my mom to sign off on it, and then I'd say, oh, wait, look, I could get these two for the same price. Would that be okay? And she would approve. It was so awesome. My son, when he was in second grade, had a bookmobile come to his school, and we told him, okay, here's some money. You buy one book, only one. And we gave him $10. And that night, I got a call from the parent of a kid in his class who said, I'm so sorry. But Quinn came home today with a book, and he said your son bought it for him. That was Jack Wilson Jr.'s idea. I can buy one book. Mom and Dad were quite clear about it. And yet they just gave me all this change when I bought my book. For some reason, for some reason, mom and dad limited me to one book. But look at all this money. And look at all those books. So I guess I'll buy a book for someone else. They didn't mention that. Here you go, Quinn. Free book. So, of course, I grounded him for a year. Just kidding. I gave him a hug. Corrected the mistake. So he'd know how to interpret our, our instructions of the future, bring home change, that's what's expected. But how could I be angry? I'm a fan of books, too. Back to the email. I am anxiously waiting on a slow pandemic delivery of Cormac McCarthy's Blood Meridian and Ralph Ellison's Invisible Man. Meanwhile, Sartre's being in nothingness, an infinite jest, and hundreds of other yet-to-be-read triumphs glare down at me from the bookshelf in disgusted disbelief. I avoid eye contact. 
cowardly blame Jack Wilson in his addictive podcast and walk away. Oh, thanks for throwing me under the bus. Like I need Sartre's being in nothingness and David Foster Wallace's infinite just any angrier with me than they already are. Email continues. Thank you for the time, energy, and passion you devote to the podcast. Your work and observations are truly appreciated. Take care and best regards, Jeremy. Wow. Thank you for the email, Jeremy. These some pretty good books you've got on your shelf, glaring down at you in disgusted disbelief. It's pretty funny, actually. Maybe you could cover them with a cloth. Who are they to tell you what to do? Who are they to tell you what to think and how to live? But I hear you. There is no doubt that I am so in awe of, say, Jane Austen, that I would not want to be on her bad side. I'd feel totally devastated. I would not want to let her down. Disgusted disbelief gives me shivers. But I read all her books and still feel like I'm letting her down in a way. I try to live up to her, but she's so good, I can't. She was just a superior being. I'm sure everyone feels the same. Here's an email from super listener Kate, who writes, Being authentic is a hugely valuable aspect of any endeavor, including writing and podcasting. The strident criticism of your, quote, political, end quote, commentary, including racism, is tiresome, far more tiresome than any political or philosophical point you make that I may have an argument with. You are authentically concerned about the treatment of fellow human beings, which is what most great authors are concerned with. Literature and art are not above politics, above is in quotes. Politics or culture or human rights are at the heart of literature, as opposed to a genre book about a stud muffin and a smart-ass princess finally getting together. People who want to be distracted by prettiness or plot twists are different from those who want to experience the depths of literature that exposes the beauty and ugliness of our human hearts. Yes, sometimes with stud muffins and plot twists. Okay, I don't like Jane Austen much because I consider her smartly vapid. But do I want you to agree with me? No. Do I want to tell you that your podcast is excellent except for your praise of Jane Austen? No. I want to tell you to keep being authentic about what you think is important. Great literature often involves unpleasant realities. I wonder if someone would object to you talking about anti-Semitism in a book like, say, The Painted Bird by Jerzy Kosinski, or The White Hotel by D.M. Thomas, or in a discussion about Newt Hampson. Preach on, because you're not preaching, you're teaching about the way such things as racism creep into what we study and read, and or you're participating in a fellowship of like minds. I hate to think of you or anyone being modified by strident opinions, censored by what someone else considers inappropriate. Continue to discuss racism in the context of literature and Jane Austen and any other thing that you consider worthy or interesting. Your devoted fan, Kate. Wow. Smartly vapid. And yet, Kate is obviously so intelligent. I kind of teed that one up. I knew it was coming. I got you all to agree. Can't we all agree? Kumbaya, Jane Austen is awesome. Just goes to show that not everyone will agree on every writer. Smartly vapid. But she's so funny. Well, I take the point. 
And thank you for the email, Kate. We will have much more to say about Mr. Baldwin and Mr. Faulkner soon. Not just the two of them, but another look at Faulkner, suggested by a listener. And the feedback I got from that little three-parter we did, it was very interesting indeed. So yes, here we go. This is all part of literature and the world, and it's all part of history, and it's all part of life. So I think it's all fair game. I agree with you, devoted fan Kate. What a wonderful email that was. And in the great spirit of Kate, who reminds us that there are no sacred cows, there are only books and readers, and it is incumbent upon us to be a reader and not a passive admirer. Take down those books that are glaring at you, Jeremy. Attack them one by one. They have no power over you because their power comes from you. You supply it. You and your mind and your spirit and your heart. Enjoy the interaction, not because the book is an object or an idol, but because the experience of reading the book will be one that you will give it, not the other way around. Okay, I think we're good. Let's take one more quick break and come back with Nina Shengold, author of the new book, Reservoir Year, A Walker's Book of Days. She was out there reading, walking, experiencing, observing, recording, writing, and revising. Let's hear how all that went after this. Okay, joining me now is one of the spiritual heirs of Henry David Thoreau, or at least she might be. That's something we can talk about with her. She joins us to discuss her quest to combine nature, writing, and the art of contemplation in her book, Reservoir Year, which tells the story of a year she spent walking near the Ashokan Reservoir in upstate New York. Nina Shengold, welcome to the History of Literature podcast. Thank you so much. You write that you were you had moved to the Catskills originally to kind of be more in touch with nature, and yet you had gotten away from that. Yes, I think that's true. I was um, a, a New York uh, playwright and uh, television writer when I moved up here, and I came up, like many, many people that I know in the Catskills, particularly many writers, I came up for a summer and stayed. I, uh, I, I ended up, uh, I, I was a summer renter, and then I started sort of idly look, looking at real estate and then mm. fell in love with an old farmhouse. And before I knew it, I was uh, an ex-New Yorker mm-hmm. living up here. That was 1988. My daughter was born here, and it was, uh, I, I, you know, I, as I say, I did go outside every day, I, but I went outside in a, in, in a much smaller way, in a sort of uh, dog walk along the, along the same roadway. And uh, when I first moved up here, I was hiking all over the Catskills and uh, and climbing mountains and uh, exploring some of the some of the some of the wilder places. And then it, it sort of settled down as I got a little older and you know was a busy writer, mother, teacher, editor, and uh, and it it became a little more. I wouldn't say suburban because I live in the middle of nowhere, but uh, but but domestic. Mm. And so I think this was a way to, to to tap back into the magnificent 
beauty of this of this region in a in an almost sixty year old body that wasn't quite so good at right. at uh, the mountain climbing anymore. Yeah, so I was really struck by I think a lot of readers or listeners hearing about this will be struck by the similarities between your project and Walden, but it might be the differences that actually stand out more. Thoreau was in pursuit of solitude, but when you went on this reservoir year, uh, when you when you started it, you were among skateboarders and fellow hikers and cyclists, and your entries are filled with observations of people, families and strangers and faces that become familiar. And I'm thinking... In terms of solitude, you might have been more alone at your desk uh, before you went out to the reservoir. <laughs> that that's true. It's actually kind of a mix because I learned very early on that there that there were hours that were full of other people and other times when I would not meet anybody. Mm. It's, uh, mm-hmm. And the reservoir is at its loveliest in terrible weather. Yeah. So. I think one of the things about making a commitment to do it every year, no matter what, at all times of day and in all kinds of weather, um, is that I really dis- discovered that the days that you look out, you look out the window and just think, "Oh no, I'm not going out in that," are exactly the time <laughs> yeah. something transcendent will happen when there, you're, there's right. nobody else on the reservoir but a but a bald eagle or a great blue heron. Yeah. Uh, where the the mountains come and go behind the fog in a way that feels absolutely magical. Yeah. Um, and uh, and so you know I did I I got inventive as I realized I was going to be writing about a lot of my fellow walkers, exercise walkers, runners, uh, local eccentrics. It's uh, it, it's definitely a place that you 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 get the flavor of the whole community, which I loved. I thought that was part of what I was writing about. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the many differences between Thoreau and John Burroughs is that Burroughs also often uh, writes about the people that he encountered, mm, and, you know, mm-hmm. in a river trip day, or um, or the farmers who he stayed overnight with when he was when he was hiking up one of the peaks. Um, and I did think that the human community was part of the project, but I also went out of my way to go there very, you know, b- before sunrise and late at night and uh, in bad weather. And at times when there weren't a lot of people around, and after I got the fishing license and started uh, sort started sort of poaching my way on some of the some of the places that are off limits to the general public, not not literally poaching. I did have a license, but I wasn't fishing most of the time. I was hmm. walking with my fishing pole to stay within the letter of the law. I, you know, so that that gives you access to some of the some of the less traveled places um, right. than the than the public walkway. So what were you hoping to get from the Daily Walk? Your project was you were going to visit it at least once a day, every day for a year. Three hundred and six. I think it was a leap year, right? It's 366 days. It was a leap year. Yeah. yeah. So what were you and hoping? And I couldn't resist uh, re- <laughs> repeating the uh, the day that I started, uh, which was September 15th. Um, so it's actually 367 micro essays. Got it. Um, I I, I think at the very beginning I had no idea. You know, I, mm-hmm. I, I decided fairly early on that there that that I would do it for a year and that that I would write every day about uh, about whatever I observed, and that uh, it it did start to shape itself into a book idea fairly early on. But I didn't. I, I it wasn't a project that I conceived of and then started. It was something that I started and then thought, oh, I'm going to keep doing this. Mm-hmm. So. So there wasn't a, a, a kind of um, goal set for myself in terms of uh, in terms of what I was looking for. I just I, I 
I think it had mostly just to do with observation, with noticing more, with being in 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 touch with the daily changes, the seasonal changes, and uh, getting to know a place inside out. And I I found that counterintuitively, they the more you do something, the less boring it gets. The more mm-hmm. there is to notice, mm-hmm. and, uh, it it it, uh, it it just it makes you really drill down and focus in a way that going. I mean, travel always wakens up the senses. You know, that's that's why there's so much great writing that 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 comes from people being in new places for the first time. But there's something about learning a familiar landscape inside out. And uh, it's you know it's one thing to to look up and see an eagle overhead and and gas. It's another thing to, to to realize that you recognize individual birds because one of them has a snaggletooth feather and one of them has a you know a, a, a different flight style. I don't even know how to, to to and that you're watching their daily commute and that mm. they're on their way to 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 fish in a particular cove and to bring it back to the nest and that they're that you watch the uh the teenage eagle who's not quite ready to fledge sort of hopping out onto the you you really get to know the the um the locals, the neighbors, the mm. uh the non-human neighbors in in a in a very intimate way. Right, and you didn't take pictures, and you, I didn't take pictures, and you didn't take a notebook or a pen uh, when you were out there. I did take a notebook and a pen, but not while I was walking. I left not it. I left it in my car. Right, and uh, and that was very that was very deliberate. I wanted mm-hmm. to uh, I wanted to be there when it happened. Yeah. I wanted to uh, to to uh, you know, and, and I I I think that. Sometimes we forget that we really are recording devices that 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 our senses take things in and that we're able to hold on to the um, the, the essence of something in a way that lets us recreate it later. Mm-hmm. I, I often would would um, would come back with my head full of a couple, you know phrases and keywords that I I write down as soon as I got back to the car, and then when I when I got home, either immediately or sometime later that day, I would um, stretch those out into prose at the end of the day, type up each day's work in a kind of, you know, a rough draft, um, mm-hmm. more like a more like a, 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 a log on a sailboat um, than than like a like like a real piece of, um, mm-hmm. of writing. So at the end of 367 days, I had an incredibly repetitive, uh, <laughs> very, very uh very very long first draft uh that that I I then spent a year or two um revising and and sort of boiling down like maple syrup. Mhm. Well, let's give the listeners a taste of what it sounds like. So do you have a few selections you could read for us? Oh, sure. I I'd, I'd be happy to do that. I I'm going to start with the the first day just because it, it sort of sets sets up um, and read one from each of the four seasons. That's oh, how the okay. book is organized. So the first day Starts is in, in the, the fall. fall. Yep. Yeah, first day is, uh, and and it is, it, it's uh, presented in the style of a logbook uh, um, with uh, with headers for each day. So you know what what uh, where I was in the in the project and and what time of day. So this is day one, September fifteenth, two thousand fifteen, seven p.m. Sunset walk along the Ashokan Reservoir under whisper pastel sky 
Two deer graze on the steep embankment below the walkway over the Olive Bridge Dam. I stand still, holding my breath as they work their way toward me. The doe stays a few yards downhill, but the fawn comes so close I can see white fur lining its ears and hear its teeth munching vetch. A bicyclist passes. They spook and charge down the hill, white tails flashing. I turn to see western clouds streaked flamingo with a sliver of new moon hovering over the cleft of Slide Mountain. And then the uh, the winter walks tend to be shorter. The uh, the the uh, entries uh, <laughs> the, the uh, entries throughout vary in length. I think the the shortest one is only one word, and I think they run up to a couple of pages. Um, but uh, but they I, I tried to. That was one of the things that I did when I was editing it was to try and uh, vary the tone and length of them. So this is day one forty five. February 6th, 1.10 p.m. The usual walk in the usual gray with the usual weekend crowd. Did I notice one thing worth writing today? Only this as I'm leaving. Old guy in Ray-Bans who zips his black jacket up to his chin, reads the sign on the guardrail, and declares in purest Bronx tones, No entrance for any purpose? What fools! And now I'm into spring. Day 235, May 6th, 4 p.m. Encounters with avian gods. Seven gulls are patrolling the lemon squeeze. A runner in yellow crosses the bridge, gulls swooping over her head like something out of Hitchcock. They circle and crisscross above, then resettle, five on one wall and two on the other. As I approach, they grow restive, eyeing me. Then they take to the air with a clamor of feline mews. A huge bald eagle dive bombs an interloper above Driftwood Cove, circling and banking, harassing the other bird until it flies off, a dark silhouette with slender curved wings. The eagle gives chase. As I watch the duel, a compact, friendly man on a bike pulls up behind me. Osprey, he tells me, confirming my hunch. Then he takes out his iPhone and searches for a picture he took last month, a complete double rainbow with close-ups of one brightly colored span. Disneyland, he says, grinning. This place is amazing. I tell him, enjoy your ride. And he answers, enjoy your vision. I do. I will. I like that. The ellipses. I like the ellipses in that one. Enjoy your dot, dot, dot. (laughs) Vision. <laughs> I, I had no idea what the noun was going to be when he finally landed on it. It was a rather long pause. Um, and, and now I'm into day 333, um, middle of a very hot summer, August 12th, 3.10 a.m. I wake from an unplanned nap in my desk chair with lights blazing all over the house. I go downstairs to turn them off and see stars out the windows. I step onto the porch. Sure enough, there's a break in the clouds that have hidden the Perseid meteor shower all week. Tonight's the peak night. Feeling lightly insane, I pour cold coffee into a thermos and drive to the res. There isn't one car on the road. Lots of blown leaves and ripped branches from earlier thunderstorms. There are puddles and bats. As I open the door, a moth circles the dome light, 
casting a dark, moving shadow. I'm spooked, but the fillip of thrill wakes me up. I step out of the car. It's dead quiet. The sky's clear overhead, still covered with clouds to the east. I can't see Cassiopeia, where the shooting stars are supposed to originate. I set out in the dark. Within seconds, I see a short streak, and yes, I do gasp. A small voice in my head says, Okay, you can go home now. A larger voice tells it to shut up. Distant flashes of heat lightning, cool night air moving around me, a soundtrack of bullfrogs and Katie did scrape. Another small streak. I stop walking and crane my neck, scanning from side to side. I tell myself I'll go home after ten shooting stars. Or twelve. I just want to see one really big one, one dome-to-horizon white trail. Streak, streak, one after another, nine, ten. Okay, maybe twenty. Then I get this crazy idea to stay here until I've seen sixty for my sixtieth year. The clouds are beginning to break up. The newspaper said there could be up to two hundred per hour. Sixty meteors sounds impossible. But when I get up to 30, I realize I'm going to do it. Come stiff neck, come boredom, come yawns and long pauses. Every time I think, this is stupid, you've seen enough, I spot another. I hear a trout jump. A barred owl calls over the water again and again. Then another owl, higher, a tenorish purr. Constellations and stardust. It's not about meteors, is it? It's about being part of the universe, letting things go. Because loss is enormous, but love is infinite. I count 64 meteors in just under an hour. Number 57 is the best. Mm. Okay. (laughs) Now that is something I would not have done if I were not writing a book. I don't think anything would have gotten me up at 3 in the morning to go (laughs) and look at shooting stars by myself. It's beautiful. It's beautiful and that you have that. And a few of the walks are not by myself. I sometimes brought friends with me, mm. uh, and the conversation becomes part of it. Um, yeah. And uh, as I say, some of them are sort of off-road in places I've never been before, uh, fishing paths that go down onto stretches of wilderness beach and open up some amazing views of the mountains. How important was the writing to the to the year? Do you feel like you enjoyed things more or that you observed more because you knew... Part of you, you know, part of your mind had to be alert and awake and observant and be able to come back with something that was worth putting down in your journal? Yes, there was definitely, that's a wonderful question, by the way. Um, there was definitely a treasure hunt uh, feel to to, mm. to each mm-hmm. walk, kind of, uh, kind of what, what, what can I find today? What's the, you know, what, what, what nugget can I bring back to the desk? It was amazing to me that I never ran out of things to write about. Mm, um, mm-hmm. I occasionally uh, wrote about wrote, wrote. You know, I'm not the most disciplined person in the world. I, I don't. I don't. Uh, I I don't often keep a promise to myself to you know a New Year's resolution or an exercise regime or a, you know write a certain number of words per day kind of uh, discipline that that uh, that that many people develop in in the course of their writing careers. When I when I make those pledges, I tend to, to do them religiously for a short time, and then there's always the, the fall away, the, 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 the time that, uh, that you, 
you you break your stride for the first time and then say, oh well, it's all over now. Hmm. So uh, I'm 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 puzzled that that didn't happen on this one. That I that I actually did keep with it. I think that may have been what I was secretly after. The uh, actually completing a project, having and, some discipline. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. But as I say at the beginning, I really didn't know what I was up to. I just knew that I was compelled to do it, and uh, and that uh, and that I felt good every time I got there. It uh, it was uh, it was exciting and and challenging, and kept kept it kept my attention. It did. It felt very alive, and uh, you know, I looked forward to it as if I was meeting a lover. It was. Uh, mm. What what will happen today? That's a wonderful thing to feel when you're when you're heading out for a daily walk. Yeah, as someone who is is similar has a similar relationship with New Year's resolutions and exercise regimes and things, there <laughs> <laughs> there have been times where I kind of push through and come out the other side, and you start to feel so good exercising and so bad if you don't. Like I get I would get restless thinking, you know, oh, my body needs it. And I could imagine that you would kind of feel the same. There must have been days where, you know, if you had to do something in the morning or or afternoon, you you probably found yourself getting a little bit itchy to when you could get back to the reservoir. Absolutely. And, uh, and, you know, there were some logistical issues as well. I had to, if I I was uh, going down to New York, say, where my parents were still living at at the time, they eventually retired up here. Right, my You'd father have to race back. Ninety-one, and <laughs> and and I would yes, I would make sure that I got my reservoir walk in on the way to the uh, uh, on the way to the train station early in the morning, or that I got back before midnight and did a late uh, a, a late one. I uh, I did a week long teaching residency at at the Omega Institute and drove back and even though I had a faculty cabin, I drove back and forth to my house every day so I wouldn't miss my miss my walk. I have a. There are a couple of away games. There were a few times when I actually couldn't quite, quite uh, physically be there, and I decided that I think I made it 200 days before I had any break. And then the first one was a uh, time that I went down to stay with my parents in the, in the city, and had to stay overnight, which I had not been planning to do. Mm. So I went for a walk on the Central Park Reservoir. I thought, well, it's the same water. It's just come down the river as I have. Mm. And later, I had a, a, a teaching job in Maine. I was teaching a, an online class, and at the end of the class, I always go up for a couple of days to have one-on-one interviews and uh, and sort of final conferences with the students, and to put together a public reading of the work that they they've done in the in the workshop over the course of the semester. And you really can't commute from Orono, Maine, to uh, to the Ashokan Reservoir right. in a day. So, uh, so, but uh, it happens that Orono, Maine, is on an island, which is at mm. the confluence of, uh, of of two rivers. So I I walked along water and saw a lot of the same wildlife and a little different wildlife and uh, and and another place of beauty. So I figured I figured that that the the main pledge was to uh, was 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 to get to get to do the daily walk and write. Um, and right. that there were a couple of a couple of away games in the in the course of the, of, of the year. Did you feel any guilt about these uh, departures from monogamy? Your your jealous lover? Oh, sure. uh, did you feel like yeah. the reservoir was uh, upset with you for for missing a day? Absolutely, I've been seeing as a <laughs> reservoir. <laughs> 
Okay. There was, a, there, was a, there was a third one as well, that's Skaniatlas Lake uh, out in the Finger Lakes, which is where my father is from, where we have a fam- family reunion every year since I was a little kid. And, uh, and that is the reservoir for the city of Syracuse. Syracuse University Press actually is, uh, is publishing the, uh, the, the book. So, so that, uh, that felt like old home week. Uh, and I think in some ways that's where the, I, where my love of nature stems from, um, hmm. being a kind of suburban kid growing up in New Jersey with a father commuted to work in New York. Um, I was just across the George Washington Bridge and, uh, summer was when, when, uh, summer on the lake was when, when I was outdoors and, uh, you know, kind of running free all day and, uh, picking up crayfish and, uh, and noticing, you know, finding puffballs in the woods and noticing the different barks of different trees and all the things that, uh, that seem so magical, birch, birch trees, for instance, um, mm. And uh, different kinds of wildflowers that grew along the road that would come come into bloom one week and the next week they'd be gone and something else would be there. And those cycles of nature really uh, appealed to me. I I also I also had a favorite child, children's book which is set in the Catskills. Um, it's uh it's called My Side of the Mountain by mm-hmm. Jean Craighead George and it's about a a New York City boy who uh, with a, from a, from her other big and I guess a little bit neglectful family who runs away from home for a year and uh, lives off the land in a hollow tree in the Catskill Mountains and I read that book till the covers fell off mm. it was absolutely uh, an obsession and I I really do think that's why I wound up in this part of the country and probably why I I had such a, a attraction to to being outdoors. You know what's funny about that? You write about that. You know what I was struck by when I was reading that is I grew up uh, in a small town in Wisconsin. It was very rural. And so I had a lot of uh, forests and cornfields and all of that were sort of my uh, part of my backyard. And uh, the book that I was obsessed with was from the mixed of files of Mrs. Basilie Frankenweiler, where the kids run oh, away okay. and they go live in a museum and in live New York in the City. Metropolitan yeah. Museum. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And I was yeah. obsessed with that book, and I, I loved that book too. I loved like uh, just the idea that you could stop off at a at a cafe and buy a donut, and that you you know, and and then of course the museum itself, and. And just the uh, the escape to the urbanity of it, I think, was what I was looking for. So it's it's kind of the uh, maybe there's something to that for the young mind of uh, being able to disappear right. to some place that they're not familiar with. Well, that's that's what books do, isn't it? You know, they open open other worlds to you, ones that uh, you may not have visited in person. Right. And if something is is beautifully written, it it really takes you there body, mind, and soul. You, you you feel like you've gone somewhere else. Well, that kind of leads me to what I wanted to talk to you about next. And I didn't know how to phrase this as a question. So here's what I've done. I've uh, kind of written down uh, four different types of books that I think can come out of a project like this. And I'm, I'm, I'm pretending that I'm describing this for someone who hasn't yet encountered the book and is wondering about the approach you took. And I was going to tell you the four different approaches. And I kind of, I mean, I think all of all such books are kind of a blend, but I'm, I'm going to try to kind of uh, give a percentage of where I think you, your book lies on the spectrum here. Does that make sense? Okay. 
Okay. So one kind of book, if I hear that someone has spent a year in nature or doing something in nature, I might have the expectation that the person is setting out, uh, maybe they're a wildlife expert. Their observations of the flora and the fauna will be detailed and precise and, and scientific. And you can imagine a book like Darwin on the Galapagos making discoveries and recording the natural world for almost like a scientific purpose. Uh, I I don't see this as being that kind of book in a big way, maybe about 10%. Is that, you think that's fair? <laughs> I think so. I would uh, describe myself as more of a nature fan than yeah. a naturalist, certainly yeah. not a wildlife expert. Right. Okay. The second category is you might see someone who was pushed to their limits by life. Maybe they ha- they're dealing with a trauma and every day we'll see them retreating to nature to deal with grief or 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 something else and and a lot of the entries will be about this central dilemma and we'll kind of watch the narrator explore the aspects of themselves as they as they cope or grow and by the end maybe they've come to some kind of peace with this inner turmoil nature is sort of a vehicle for self-analysis or self-expression and again i don't see this as being that kind of book either small percentage i would i would agree that's more the the, the pattern of say wild by uh, by cheryl Strait. something terrible has happened to me and i take to nature to work through it right okay i'm uh, just to not to bury the lead here number four is the one that i think is is going to be the closest <laughs> okay. okay number three would be uh, things I learned from the reservoir. You might start an entry with a preconceived notion about a natural phenomenon, and and that might get deepened or overturned through observation. And the movement goes from assumption to reality, and it ends up being a metaphor for our own weaknesses or foibles or our inability to grasp the world around us. And here, this type of book, I, I think of as a narrator learning a lot of lessons like how to catch a rabbit, and here's how to build a house, and here's how an eagle lands on the water, and here's how to make coffee with no matches. And and the effect on the reader is to kind of say, here's what the rest of you were all missing when you were watching television and worrying about politics or busy earning money. Uh, I was out kind of, <laughs> you know, gaining this knowledge. And I don't really see this as being that kind of book either. There may be some elements of that, but Oh, a few lessons learned, but uh, but but not not how to make coffee without uh, without a coffee pot. No. <laughs> okay, so here's where I kind of situate your book in this tradition, and the analogy I kept reaching for was Japanese haiku, like those with a traveler who's on the way from village to village after dark. And these, I don't want to suggest that the writing here is stylistically like haiku, although some of them kind of are. But I would say it's it's more like the aims of haiku, but with humor and people and anecdotes. Haiku, if it were in the form of vignettes, there's prose segments, but you know we have and these daily entries. But there's not necessarily a lesson learned or a moral to the story. And you're not, as a narrator, you're not on a mountaintop delivering us the news of your discoveries. You're inviting us to experience the walk with you. We don't get over hit over the head with an epiphany, or the epiphany is there, but it's not packaged up neatly for us. We might get a bit of memory. Sometimes a, it's an impression from nature, sometimes an overheard conversation, sometimes an encounter, or sometimes it's a question that's arisen. And it all encourages us to think and to reflect, but it doesn't set out to bombard us with answers. It's it's more subtle than that. It's saying, here's the world, 
here's a life and a mind within that world, and here's what that means, or maybe I should even say, here's how that is. And then over time, we get to know you better, and we start to trust you, and we start to enjoy your way of looking at the world, because this isn't just haiku. It's got the element of a diary and a life lived through time as well. And I, I give that about 70%. Is that fair? Well, thank you. <laughs> that, uh, yeah, that, uh, I, I think that w- one thing that I was, I was pretty clear on when I, when I started making this into a book was that it wasn't a memoir so much as, mm-hmm. uh, as, um, uh, that, that the camera was, that I was the camera, that I was always turned outward. It was what I observed rather than what I, what was going on within me that, that right. brought me to that place. Right. We're um, learning about you yeah. as an observer more than you as a person. Right. And, you know, like any any uh, group of portraits uh, by by a, a photographer tells you an awful lot about the about the photographer. Uh, nothing is nothing is objective. It's a, you know, any any observation is filtered through the sensibility of the person who's observing it. So I'm sure that that comes comes in through the side door but my uh my my intent was you know the a particular year in the life of a place as observed mm. by a particular person mm-hmm. at a particular time in my life i think if i had written the same set out to do the same project when i was uh when i was 20 or 30 it would be a very very different book mm. um and I think if you know the weather had been different that year, it would be a very different book. If uh, if the uh, any 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 number of things could have uh, could have changed the 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 arc of 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 how I experienced that place and and the year that I set that I set aside to do this, but uh, but it was really a kind of make it up as you go along. I did, didn't have a, a, a thing that I, that I was hoping to hunt and gather it was uh, it, it was uh, just to, to to go out the door and look at what's there closely and and uh, and see what what it gave me and looking back on the year do you think you were the same person when you started as you were the day that you finished uh, it, it, in essential ways I think I'm the same person but I think I'm a little calmer Mm. I think I pay more attention to to things. Mm-hmm. I've noticed that uh, when when I walk other places, places that I I haven't been before and don't know as well, that that uh, I'll see more in them than um, than I think I would have before I before I sort of put on the close up lens and 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 my eyes by by doing this project. Mm. Um, I think it made me a little more patient. Yeah, um, and a uh, feeling that. Maybe rather than be impatient a little, with a place, a feeling that this place could give me more if I gave it the time to do so. Exactly. That, that mm. there's, there's a kind of um, just just the the this the sense of intimacy with 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 um, with, with, with the outside world and uh, and and you know our our human place within the larger world, which I, I think you you know you started started talking a little about Thoreau and I think that's very much what was on his mind uh, was uh, 
was was a kind of philosophical discourse about uh, about solitude and nature and 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 actually about walking one of his early pieces is entitled walking it was originally a lecture and has a lot of the same themes as as uh on Walden Pond but uh a lot not not as well known mm. he also has a, a very piece called winter walks um but uh but you know where where I see the similarity to to Thoreau is in the choosing to go back to the same place again and again, or in his case, to to to, to stay at the same same place and mm-hmm. and uh, become um, intimately familiar with the rhythms of a of, of a particular stretch of your world. Right. Um, that's very different from from nature writing that's that's travel based. That's uh, another another book that I love um, that. That again goes back to the same place over and over and over again, um, and it's a, like like Walden Pond, which in in person is remarkably small. It's uh, it he, he creates such a world from this uh, from from this this very very uh, tame stretch of woods um, with a with a pretty little pond in it. Um, is uh, Annie Dillard's um, mm-hmm. uh, book uh, Pilgrimage? Tinker, Tinker Creek, Creek yeah. which I think is just a masterpiece of, of observational writing and which, again, goes back to the same place over and over and over again and is just a, a, a question of how much you can see and one, by, by being very still and by uh, waiting for, for nature to come to you, seeing what's, what's, what's happening mm. around you. And that you might not have paid any attention to if you were not planning to write about it. I, th- I do think that's is coming back to your great question. I think, I think the difference between there. I mean, there are people who go outdoors every day anyway. They're runners who have right. a you know a, a, a daily run that they do in the same place over and over again. They're dog walkers. They're people who uh, just are in the habit of taking a taking a stroll after dinner, or whatever. And they do observe a lot of things. Um, and uh, and that's part of the joy of that pursuit, but there's something very different about uh, about writing writing down what it is that you've observed, of not just letting it pass through your head, but thinking, what is there that I want to hold on to? What is the what is the thing that happened today that never happened before? What is the thing I'm seeing for the first time? What is uh, what is what what made the biggest impression on me? Mm. What sort of up and grabbed me by the collar when I'm in a place I've been in dozens of times, hundreds of times. Right. Okay. Well, we are all finished, except I have a surprise bonus question. Okay, great. Are you ready? Yes, I am. Okay, and this, I have a feeling based on what we've been talking about, you are going to find this to be a very difficult question. So we will, (laughs) good luck. (laughs) <laughs> okay. Okay. Here it is. During and <laughs> During a quarantine, you fall asleep mumbling to yourself about being inside and being outside and being inside and being outside. When you awake, there is a genie sitting on your bed. Aha, she says, time for one wish to be granted, but you're not going to like it. I'm going to take away from you two of your greatest pleasures, reading and writing and being outside in nature. But because I am feeling generous, I will give one of them back. You can choose to live indoors with all your books and all your pens and paper, or you can go you can forego reading and writing, 
but in exchange you will be permitted to travel to the reservoir and experience the wonders of nature to your heart's content. Which do you choose and why? I'm sorry, but I, I want this genie to catch the virus. <laughs> that, is a, that is a devil's question. Uh, well, good Lord. Um, it might be the toughest question since I asked my old uh, Italian professor to give up either pasta or Dante. Yeah, that is that, it is. It's the same question, actually. It's the it's the uh, the physical pleasures of the world, or uh, or the pleasures of reading about the world. Yeah. Do you uh, think you could enjoy the reservoir? Could you be happy and fulfilled and content if you weren't writing about it? Uh, yes, I do think I could be content if I wasn't writing. If, if I weren't writing about it, um, I would. Uh, giving up other people's books is the is the, mm. is the is the real hard part of that. Yeah. Um, I think I. I mean, I'm not writing about the reservoir now, and I am walking a lot because uh, because you know I'm teaching remotely and uh, and I'm not going out into the world and and in other ways. Uh, they they daily joy and this is actually an irony of (laughs) of our current situation is that uh, people are going outdoors so much more if it's the one it's it's the one excursion you can take when you're when you're under lockdown is to to go for a walk right you can't go to the movies uh, or or restaurants but you can go where there's space you can go to open spaces you can go to open spaces i see families taking walks together i see uh i see uh it's it's actually gotten gotten kind of alarming to walk on what used to be my my regular path on the on on the walkway because there's so many people out with their masks on you know keeping six foot distance from each other that mm-hmm. you're, you're everybody uh, you're you're passing people too often it's uh, yeah. so I've started walking back roads and um, and areas you know I'll just drive my car to someplace I've driven driven to but never never been in on foot and uh think hmm i'm just gonna take a look at this funny little mountain back road that i've never been on i'm just gonna take it slow and walk a couple of miles out and back and hmm. uh see what i notice so um, knowing what you know I, but i'm not answering your question yeah, i really you... don't know which to give up I, yeah. my first question was going was going to be one for the genie um do, do i get windows Oh, can I right. uh, can I can, can I perch, perch the house I'm stuck in <laughs> uh, in a place where uh, where where the uh, the weather and the breeze and uh, and the birds in the yard and all that kind of stuff uh, give me give me the outside world even though I'm not allowed into it. I was going to say that, case, that I think I'd take the the books and the views. I think I could yeah. I could do without. And, uh, yeah. That was going to be my question. Knowing what you know about yourself, having gone through that year and how important nature became to you and, and just to your 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 state of mind and your, your soul, uh, whether giving it up you'd feel like would be. Uh, but I can see the difference. If you're in a windowless room, uh, not many of us could survive that for long. But if you're allowed to be, you know, on a screened-in porch during the nice weather and and beneath glass right. and and skylights and so forth, you could almost uh, you could almost and, endure it. And you can read and at least witness nature, even if you're not uh, if you're not taking the particular walk that you that you've fallen in love with. Mm. 
song. Okay, well, I'm sorry so, to put yes, you through that. I, I think that's my, my <laughs> that's my that's my both and response. Is, uh, I'll take the, I'll take the books with the view. Well, I've learned from talking to other uh, writers that that is known as the poet's response. <laughs> both and uh, okay so the book is called Reservoir Year A Walker's Book of Days published by Syracuse University Press Nina Shengold thank you very much for joining me on the history of literature oh thank you so much Jack I really enjoyed this Okay, there we go. That's going to do it for this episode of the History of Literature. My thanks to Nina Shengold for her project and for joining me to talk about it. You can find her book, Reservoir Year, wherever you buy your books. We've got some more Mike Palindrome coming up soon. We do another literary battle royale. I trounce him once again, frankly. It's really not a fair fight. It's like, I, I don't even know. Something just rises up within me and I win and I win and I win you'd think he'd have won this one when you hear what sides we have but I think I pulled it out at the end spoiler alert (laughs) spoiler alert I am awesome and thanks to all the emailers and supporters of the show I'm glad you're all here and that you chose to spend some time with me today I'm Jack Wilson thank you for listening And we'll see you next time.